Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As mentioned at the end of the last episode, today's topic comes from a listener suggestion. I really do appreciate those, so please keep them coming. We're going to cover the history of the cochlear implant, a surgically implanted device that turns sound into electric signals, which are then transmitted to the brain. This allows patients who are deaf to hear sound, a truly amazing innovation. Now, to fully understand the history, we'll have to cover some of the basic physiology of hearing, the history of electrical stimulation of hearing, and cover one of the main surgeons involved in the invention of the cochlear implant, Dr. William House. And of course, here are some interesting side notes and anecdotes. There's lots to listen to in this episode of Legends of Surgery. To understand cochlear implants, we should first review the basics of how we hear. As you're listening to this podcast, the sound of my voice is being transmitted to your brain, so let's follow the pathway. So the first part is your outer ear. This is the pinna, the ear canal, and the eardrum. The pinna, which is the external part of your ear, the thing that holds up your glasses, acts as a sort of funnel to collect sound waves towards the auditory or ear canal. Without it, sound would take a more direct route into the canal, which would cause a lot of the sound waves to be lost, making it harder to hear. Pinna is Latin for wing or fin. Now next, the sound waves travel down the ear canal about two or three centimeters before hitting the eardrum, aka the tympanic membrane. A public service announcement, most ENT doctors recommend you put nothing smaller than your own elbow in your ear. Go ahead and try, I'll wait. No luck? The idea is that the ear has a built-in conveyor belt system to move earwax, the medical term is cerumen, from the Latin cera meaning wax, out of the ear canal. Using cotton tips to attempt to remove the wax simply pushes it further into the ear. You can also risk damaging your eardrum, so now you know. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. So the eardrum marks the beginning of the middle ear, which also includes three bones, the malleus, incus, and stapes. Now that last one is the smallest bone in the human body. A little cocktail trivia for you. Now their names come from their shapes. The malleus is hammer-shaped, think mallet. The incus is anvil-shaped, and the stapes is stirrup-shaped. Sounds make the eardrum vibrate, and these vibrations are transmitted and amplified by these three tiny bones to the oval window, which is a membrane that covers the entrance to the cochlea. Finally, we've reached our destination. Now the cochlea, so-called because it looks a lot like a snail shell, and it's actually Latin for snail shell, turns sound vibrations into electrical signals, which are then sent to the brain via the auditory nerve, which also is called the eighth cranial nerve. There are 12 cranial nerves in total. It's a long story, but if you're interested, ask a medical student. They almost undoubtedly have a mnemonic to remember all 12, and it's usually more dirty limerick than not. Now the cochlea is filled with fluid. When the sound waves are transmitted to the oval window at the front of the cochlea, the fluid moves in thousands of microscopic hair fibers inside the cochlea, estimated at around 24,000, are moved. Now these hairs vary in length and stiffness, giving them different resonant frequencies. So when the hair cells are moved, they send an electrical impulse through the acoustic nerve. So basically the cochlea turns sound waves into electric signals. The discovery that externally applied electricity could stimulate the cochlea goes back to English portraitist and electricity experimenter Benjamin Wilson, who worked with one of the first electrical capacitators called the Leyden jar in 1748. And that's basically a thing that stores electrical energy similar to a battery. Now, placing the electrodes on the temples of a deaf woman, Wilson described the results as follows, quote, The covered vial being electrized by two turns of the wheel only, I applied the end of a thick wire which was fastened to the covering of the vial to the left temple just above the ear. Then I brought the end of that wire, which was in the vial, towards the opposite part of her head, and there ensued a small explosion. She was much surprised and perceived a warmth in her head, but chiefly across it from ear to ear. I repeated the experiment four times and made the electrical shock stronger each trial, end quote. 
Now, why anyone would agree to subject themselves to repeated electric shocks, I don't know. But the next experimenter did it to himself. Now, this was in 1800 by Alessandro Volta, who is credited with inventing the battery. He applied electricity to his ears through metal rods and wrote a paper stating, quote, The hearing will be strongly affected by introducing into the ears two probes. It was a kind of jerky crackling as though some paste or tenacious matter was boiling, end quote. He did not enjoy this given his account of the experience. Quote, the disagreeable sensation, which I apprehended as being dangerous of shock in the brain, prevented me from repeating the experiment, end quote. Now, these experiments at least showed the basic principle that electricity could stimulate hearing. And through the 1930s, a number of experimenters worked out that it was in the cochlea where sound was converted into electrical signals. And the next breakthrough came in 1940 when Americans Clark Jones, Stanley Smith Stevens, and Moses Lurie placed electrodes directly into the middle ears of 20 patients lacking tympanic membranes, remember eardrums. Now, most of these patients had undergone radical mastoid operations, meaning the bone behind the ear had been removed, typically due to complications from otitis media, also known as middle ear infections. And because of the proximity of these electrodes in, to the inner ear and the resulting production of the perception of sound, the idea that direct stimulation of the auditory nerve might result in hearing was hypothesized. But the breakthrough came in 1957 in an operation that has become part of cochlear implant folklore. A patient with a history of bilateral extensive cholesteatomas, which are a destructive growth of squamous epithelium in the middle ear, usually from chronic infections, required temporal bone resections and was left with profound hearing loss and facial nerve paralysis. The facial nerve is in the same neighborhood. It's actually cranial nerve number seven, by the way. Okay, so our patient saw the anti-surgeon Charles Iries in Paris, France, to be considered for a facial nerve graft. Iris had a chance meeting with André DiGiorno, a physics professor interested in implanting an electrode to stimulate the auditory nerve. So on February 25th of 1957, during the surgery to repair the facial nerve, a single receiver coil with stainless steel terminals was placed on the stump of the auditory nerve. Following the operation, the external coil was left for a month before being removed. Iris and DiGiorno were able to apply electricity to the coil causing the patient to perceive a sound which he likened to crickets chirping or a ball going round in a roulette wheel. The news hit the international press and before long, a deaf patient living in Los Angeles brought some newspaper clippings of the experiment to Dr. William House of the House Ear Institute, asking if this was something she might benefit from. So let's take a few minutes to meet Dr. William House, who would play a large role in the development of cochlear implants. So born December 1st, 1923, William Fouts House grew up in Whittier, California. His father was a dentist and House himself first went to dental school, graduating from the University of California, Berkeley in 1945. Following this, House did a postgraduate year in oral surgery. On the advice of his father, House applied to medical school to further pursue surgery and was accepted to the University of Southern California Medical School in Los Angeles with a start date of September of 1946. But there was only one problem. While in dental school, House had joined the United States Navy as a dental officer, which had helped to pay his way through school. Now, unfortunately, that meant a two-year obligation to the Navy, and it was time to repay. Luckily, House was able to defer medical school for two years while he served. After graduation from med school, Dr. House spent one year doing a rotating surgical internship at the Los Angeles County Hospital, where he decided to specialize in maxillofacial surgery. Now, at the time, the field was primarily a part of plastic surgery, which would be three years of general surgery and two more years of plastic surgery to become a board-certified plastic surgeon. An ENT residency was three years, so House decided on that. And here's a funny side note. He joined the ENT program at a time when penicillin had become widely available. The mainstay of ENT at the time was treating sinus and mastoid disease by surgery, but 
Now they were miraculously cured, and some lecturers actually said that the miracle drug penicillin had eliminated the entire specialty of ENT. Now, due to this bad rap, the L.A. County Hospital, which normally took three ENT residents a year, only had one, House, as he was the only applicant. Now, one interesting tidbit of his training was that he had to do high tracheotomies on polio patients that had chest and diaphragm paralysis and had to be put in iron lungs. This is something we don't see today, which is why you have to vaccinate your kids. Now, House spent the last six months of residency at the Los Angeles Children's Hospital and worked with the hospital audiologist who took care of hearing-impaired and deaf children. He also had time to observe his brother Howard's practice, who had a busy ENT practice that was 95% autology. William noted how grateful the patients were and decided to become an autologist specializing in hearing and join his brother. He would end up staying for 33 years. Together, they started the Los Angeles Foundation of Autology, a nonprofit research institution, which later became known as the Ear Research Institute, then the House Ear Institute, and is now the House Research Institute. His career is fascinating and varied with many innovations. Now, obviously, we're going to be focusing on the cochlear implant, but before we do, I'd like to highlight a few other interesting areas of his practice. Now, early in their collaboration, House's brother, Howard, went to Germany to learn how to use the operative microscope, something we've covered in previous podcasts. So he bought one and brought it back, making it one of the first Zeiss surgical microscopes in the U.S. And William was so impressed, it became part of his practice for the next 45 years. He described the experience of first looking through it to the overwhelming awe he felt the first time he saw the Grand Canyon as a 12-year-old boy. When looking to improve the microscope head by adding a viewing tube for observers, he met Jack Urban from the Urban Optical Company, and they became lifelong collaborators. An interesting bit of history was that House developed some of his microscopic surgical techniques by going to the morgue one night a week to dissect the middle ear. The autopsy assistant was paid $25 to set up an unclaimed body on which he could develop various surgical procedures, and the next day the body would be sent to the crematorium. His wife, June, a nurse he had met while still in dental school, would sometimes join him as his nurse assistant. Dr. House had many innovations, including designing some surgical instruments and pioneering some surgical approaches to lesions of the middle and inner ear. He also came up with the first surgical treatment for the debilitating vertigo of Meniere's disease. A quick recap. Meniere's disease, a disease of the inner ear of uncertain cause, was named for the French doctor Prosper Meniere, who first described the symptoms in 1861. It causes patients to suffer from intermittent attacks of room-spinning vertigo, a feeling of ear pressure and loud tinnitus, which is ringing of the ears, and decreased hearing in the involved ear. These patients live in fear of their next attack, and it can be quite debilitating. Dr. House's most famous patient was Alan Shepard, one of the first seven astronauts in the U.S. space program, the movie The Right Stuff is based on them, and the first American in space. He developed many years disease, after his space flight, and was referred to House, who operated on him. Shepard was able to be reinstated as an astronaut, and he had originally been scheduled to be on Apollo 13, but was fortunate enough to be moved to the Apollo 14 mission, and was able to walk on the moon. During the mission, he famously hit two golf balls on the lunar surface. Alan Shepard invited Dr. House and his wife to the launch of Apollo 14 at Cape Canaveral, and House even talked to Shepard while he was in space. So that's all very interesting. But what we're really here to talk about is his development of cochlear implants. Now, Dr. House was only in his second year of practice when he learned of Iris and DiGiorno's famous operation. He talked to Dr. Jack Doyle, a neurosurgeon, about electric cochlear stimulation and was introduced to his brother Jim Doyle, an electrical engineer. Now, they started with three deaf adults, all of whom had gone deaf after learning speech. 
and expose their middle ears by lifting the eardrums and applying a small electric current using a battery-operated amplifier and electrode designed by Jim Doyle. Now, all three heard sounds seem related to the frequency and intensity of the electric stimulus. In early 1961, after Jim made an implantable electrode, the first two volunteer adult patients had electrodes implanted into their cochleas. Now, they were able to hear sounds, and although the noises were not clear, the potential was. But then the group hit a snag. House asked Jim Doyle for full reports on the electronics and materials he had developed, as these early patients were showing signs of rejecting the foreign material. Jim's response was, quote, You are a goddamn fool. I'm not going to give you this material. There was no written contract between us, and as far as I'm concerned, it's mine. I could even be on the way to a Nobel Prize, end quote. House called this one of the most depressing moments he ever had in medicine, as he realized he'd have to start all over. After a nearly 10-year break following the Doyle incident, House began working on cochlear implants again in 1968. He invited Jack Urban, who, if you recall, worked on operating microscopes with House, to work with him on the project. Together, they came up with a device to mimic the lost hair cell functions, which had five electrodes at four millimeter intervals to stimulate different areas within the cochlea and had an induction coil that could fit under the skin. Now, all the research was done on post-lingually deaf adults, meaning those who went deaf after being able to speak, who could describe the sounds being heard. Between 1969 and 1970, they implanted three adults. Interesting side note, two of the patients were deafened by the antibiotic streptomycin and the third by syphilis. Now, after much experimenting, House and Urban developed a single electrode cochlear implant that could modulate the amplitude of the signal, and his patients were able to make out some words. As well, in 1972, they came up with a wearable device so the patient could leave the lab and experience sound in the outside world. Their work was published in 1973 in the Annals of Autology, Rhinology, and Laryngology. This was met with criticism and hostility, as many thought it dangerous to place an electric current so close to the brain. One breakthrough that helped is an interesting anecdote. William House's daughter Karen had started a small documentary film company. She filmed House's first congenitally deaf implant patient, a 19-year-old woman. Now, Since her auditory nerve had never been stimulated, they didn't know whether it would work. So, In the film, Dr. House was holding the coil in place and Jack Urban was talking to the patient. She began to cry when she realized that she could hear for the very first time in her life. Very dramatic. The footage aired on 60 Minutes, National Geographic, Nova, and That's Incredible, bringing national attention and led to a meeting with the National Institute of Health. This led to a request for proposal in March of 1975 to study House's 11 patients and two from Dr. Mickelson, an ENT surgeon from the University of California, San Francisco, who was also working on cochlear implants. So Dr. Robert Bilger, an audiologist and neurophysiologist from the University of Pittsburgh, was chosen to do the evaluations. The report became known as the Pittsburgh Study and was released in 1977. This showed that patients tolerated the procedure well and had increased scores for lip reading and recognition of environmental sounds. But it did state that the single-channel input, meaning single electrode used by House, would not allow speech recognition and suggested that only multi-channel cochlear implants, like the ones developed by Mickelson, should be used. So let's take a minute to cover that. On May 7, 1964, the Stanford University team of ENT Blair Simmons and engineer Robert White implanted the first multi-channel cochlear implant, placing electrodes at different locations along the cochlea to stimulate different frequencies. And the procedure was reported in Science in 1965. On March 27, 1967, during a workshop on microsurgery of the ear in Chicago, Simmons used the term cochlear implant, which was the first time the term had been used to describe the artificial inner ear. So quick terminology explanation. 
All cochlear implant devices have a microphone that picks up the sounds, a signal processor that converts the sound into electrical signals, and a transmission system that transmits the electrical signals to the implanted device. Now this may be a single electrode or multiple electrodes inserted into the cochlea. In single-channel implants, only one electrode is used. In multi-channel implants, the signal processor breaks down the input into different frequency bands or channels, which are sent to different electrodes that stimulate different areas of the cochlea depending on the frequency. Now, different devices offer different numbers of channels, with 12, 16, and 22 being the most common. I hope that makes sense. The house remained loyal to his single-channel electrode to the end, as did many of his patients. In fact, one of his later patients, who received a single-channel device as a child and was able to develop spoken language, made the trip to Oregon with his mother as an adult to see William House, who at that time was near the end of his life. During the visit, Dr. House gave the man his blessing to upgrade to a multi-channel device, which he did. Okay, so let's go back. By 1981, House had teamed up with 3M to make a commercially available device. In November of 1985, the FDA announced on national television of a pre-market approval for the 3M House cochlear implant as the first medical device that could, quote, to a degree, replace an organ of the human senses, end quote. Now, other groups have begun to make commercially available devices as well, including ENT surgeon Dr. Graham Clark of Australia. His innovation was to demonstrate that an electrode with graded stiffness would pass without injury around the tightening spiral of the cochlea, permitting a deeper insertion and therefore a wider range of stimulation. So the best part of the story is that his inspiration came from a trip to the beach, where he conceptualized the cochlea using a turban shell and blades of grass as electrodes. Since grass is more flexible at the tip and gradually stiffer towards the stalk, the idea was born. Clark had begun work as early as 1967, and in 1974 used a telethon on Australia's Channel 10 to raise funds to take his work to the prototype stage. An early version of crowdfunding, I guess. He implanted his first multi-electrode cochlear implant in 1978 and had the first commercially successful multi-channel electrode called the cochlear nucleus device. So the next frontier in cochlear implants, and arguably the most impactful, was to implant children. Dr. House actually started with teenagers, but in 1981 he implanted a three-year-old girl who had lost her hearing to meningitis around the age of two. Dr. House was one of the very first to implant such young children, which, like everything else he did, it seems, generated controversy. As he states in his memoirs, House understood that the greatest benefit for the congenitally deaf child or a child that loses his or her hearing at an early age, is to be gained by implanting the child in the first year or two. Amazingly, he found out by interviewing older deaf children that by age 8 or 10, those who had been educated in residential schools for the deaf wanted to remain deaf and be with their deaf friends and marry a deaf person. In fact, the development of cochlear implants was controversial in the deaf community, as it made deafness seem like a disability. Some even went as far as to call it cultural genocide, Many international meetings, notably in Paris and Manchester, were disrupted by protesters who invaded lecture theaters and chained themselves to roofs and railings. The fear was that by offering deaf people access to sound, these so-called bionic ears could spell the end of the culture built around ASL, or American Sign Language, as fluency in ASL is the most direct conduit into deaf culture, which sees itself as a community, which has its own distinct language and set of traditions. So where did ASL come from? Now, I didn't realize this until I read about it, but although American Sign Language borrows from English, it isn't really related to English. It has a different word order and its own idioms, jokes, and poetry. And something else I found very interesting, ASL has regional accents as different signs are used for the same thing. Now, the history of ASL began in the early 1800s with a congregational minister named Thomas Hopkins 
Golodet. He had a neighbor with a deaf nine-year-old daughter named Alice Cogswell. Golodet noticed that she was a very bright girl, and in an effort to teach her and other deaf children, he traveled to Europe in 1817 to study methods of educating the deaf. After visiting the School for the Deaf in Paris, Golodet returned to the U.S. with Laurent Clerc, a deaf teacher. In 1817, they founded the American School for the Deaf in Hartford, Connecticut. It was there that old French sign language blended with signs that children brought with them from all over the U.S., particularly from the deaf communities that had sprung up in Martha's Vineyard, where many deaf people worked as farmers and fishermen. The school is still around today, and Alice Cogswell, that little nine-year-old girl, was one of its first graduates. Today, there is a movement to find common ground between medical and deaf communities. The medical community has advised against learning ASL, while in the process of getting a cochlear implant, insisting that it will diminish their ability to acquire spoken language. But some parents are teaching both, essentially having their child be bilingual. The FDA-approved cochlear implants for adults in 1984, as mentioned, and for children over two uh, in 1989, and that was lowered to 12 months in the year 2000. The programming of cochlear implants requires more commitment from a patient and family than the surgery itself. So the implant is typically activated around the three-week mark after surgery by an audiologist and a map will be made using that minimal electrical stimulus a patient can perceive and the level of stimulus required for comfortable hearing. So that's the dynamic range of the cochlear implant. Modern users have multiple settings based on their environment, whether it's noisy or they're outdoors or it's quiet, etc. And the implant itself is able to switch between settings on its own. The biggest impact is on pre-lingually deaf children, meaning children that were deaf before they learned to speak, who are now able to acquire speech and language and fulfill their full educational potential. But note the many videos on social media of children hearing their parents' voices for the first time when their cochlear implants are activated, and I challenge you to keep a dry eye. I'll put some up on Twitter. Now, the recent trend is towards bilateral cochlear implants, giving deaf children binaural hearing, which improves both localization of sound and speech perception. Fortunately, the early pioneers of cochlear implants, including Dr. William House, were able to persist despite the lack of support within the medical community and the significant criticism to bring something truly innovative that has helped so many. It's little wonder that Dr. House called his memoirs, quote, the struggles of a medical innovator, cochlear implants and other ear surgeries, end quote. It's a good read. So here's a final quote from it. Nearly every new procedure I attempted brought with it initial criticism. Many of the autologic procedures that are standard practice today might have been delayed for years or even decades if I had listened to the cacophony of voices telling me why a new procedure wouldn't work or that it was ethically wrong, end quote. And Dr. House died December 7, 2012 at the age of 89. By that time, the end of 2012, approximately 324,000 people worldwide had received cochlear implants. And that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll cover the surgeon John Gibbon and his invention of the heart-lung bypass machine, a classic and important story in the history of surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always... Thanks for listening.